Numbers chapter 1, verses 17 through 46. Moses and Aaron took these men, whose names had been given, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people indicated their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. From the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. From the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted and listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Simeon was 59,300. From the descendants of Gad, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to their records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Gad was 46,650. From the descendants of Judah, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Judah was 74,600. From the descendants of Issachar, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Issachar was 54,400. From the descendants of Zebulun, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Zebulun was 57,400. From the sons of Joseph, from the descendants of Ephraim, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Ephraim was 40,500. From the descendants of Manasseh, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Manasseh was 32,200. From the descendants of Benjamin, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Benjamin was 35,400. From the descendants of Dan, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Dan was 62,700. From the descendants of Asher, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Asher was 41,500. From the descendants of Naphtali, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Naphtali was 53,400. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, each representing his family. All the Israelites 20 years old or more who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,000. 550. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, do you suppose that Elder Terry deserves a round of applause for getting through all those names? Now, the sermon this morning is going to attempt to accomplish two purposes, 
and still get you out of here on time. One is the question, whole issue of application. We've been preaching a, a different way through the biblical text. You know, the, the biblical text is one story from beginning to end. How the world was created beautiful, how it got messed up, and what God is doing to restore it to its original condition, and even better. It's got one overarching story from beginning to end, and we've been working our way through that. The question is, though, how does this apply to my personal life? Now, that question has to be rephrased before it can be answered. But Scripture does. The the biblical story, the meta-narrative, the whole Bible story does apply to our private lives if we rephrase that question. Now, the second thing I want to do, apart from applying Scripture today, the second thing we want to do is uh, we're going to start with a case study so that we can, can, after the case study, I can show you how it applies, how Scripture applies to our life story, or to our story, how our story fits into God's story. So first we're going to have a case study, and then we're going to have an application. Now, I need to fold the case study into the sermon because, number one, it fits. Uh, Number two, it's interesting. And the third reason is we have a lot of stuff going on in this congregation. Do you realize Millie and her team took a short-term trip in August, and we have one group share every Sunday, and November, mid-November, late November, is the first time we could get her up here to share about her trip? Because every week we've been having people share a short-term mission trip or various social concerns and mercy and justice projects they've been on. We've got so much going on that there's actually no time to fit it all in once a week. So it was neat that this uh, story fits into the sermon as a case study, and then we can hear from uh, Richard and Rachel about their plans going overseas. Okay. 1223. Hi, my name is Rachel. My husband Richard and I are currently applying to be missionaries to, to the working class um, people of Taiwan with OMF. We have shared um, with you um, about the events um, the, of the past year that confirmed to us that God wants us to move back to Taiwan. However, we have not shared with you why we have a heart for the working class of Taiwan in the first place. Uh, today, we would like to share with you why we feel such a connection to the Taiwanese people. For me, the simple answer is that I care about the working class people of Taiwan because I grew up in a blue-collar work, uh, Taiwanese family. My story is the story of many working class Taiwanese families. My parents only have elementary um, school education in a nation where education is everything. My dad um, carved wooden Buddhist idols for a living and now works as a factory worker in a small steel company. My mom works at a restaurant. My sister works at a restaurant in a a mall food court. They work very hard, but they, uh, they make little money. To make matters worse, my parents also have a gambling addiction, while my sister deals with um, depression and eating disorder. My dad developed his gambling habit before he met my mom. I remember when I was a kid, my dad usually left his wife and kids at home after work and uh, um, gambled the night away. I remember as an eight-year-old praying every night in my bed to Guanyin or Buddha that they would bring my dad home safely wherever he was. At first, my mom did not go out to gamble with my dad. 
Um, however, he, she adored my dad so much and wanted to spend time with her husband. So she too started going out to gamble with my dad when I was nine or ten years old. Uh, my parents usually locked my sister and I at home to prevent us from leaving our apartment. I do not want you to have the uh, wrong idea. My parents are not bad people. They don't smoke, they don't drink, they are not violent, and uh, they care about me. Uh, even while my dad was gambling, he always gave us food um, and did not allow anyone to hurt uh, his family. That may sound, this may sound strange, but my dad was my hero despite his gambling habit. I did not know how badly my parents' gambling uh, habit could affect our family until when I was 15 and living two hours away at a vocational school that I attended. Uh, one day I got a phone call from my sister. Uh, she told me that my dad had disappeared and that many people had come to our house to ask for money. We had to sell our house uh, in order to pay my dad's um, gambling debts. And we were now totally broke. I knew right away that at the age of 15, I was now on my own. Uh, there was no more money to pay my tuition, and I only had two choices. Drop out of school and work full-time in order to support my family, or keep going to school while um, working part-time and hope that I had uh, enough money to make it. I chose to work part-time after school, doing whatever work I could find. I ended up doing many kinds of jobs, uh, such as working in restaurants, bubble tea shops, uh, being a dental assistant, and uh, being a housemaid in a doctor's house. My main job was giving baths to his 90 years old grandma. When I, while I worked hard, my wages were only enough to pay my living expenses. As a result, I studied extra hard uh, in order to get scholarships to pay for my, to, my part of my tuition. I was able to live hand to mouth, but I was bitter inside. I blame God, Lao uh, Tianye, if he was out there for giving me a family that caused me to have a hard life. Eventually, I finished the vocational school and somehow got into um, graduate school at National Taiwan University, the best university in Taiwan. For a girl who had not gone to um, the college, that was an extremely lucky break. When I got the news, I was so happy because it meant that I would no longer be a working class person. And I had finally met it. Everything went fine in the school first. Outside of school, I met a guy who became my first boyfriend. Although I put everything into our relationship, it took a dark turn. The relationship affected my schoolwork and I could not complete my thesis. I was desperate, so I decided to um, tell a professor about my situation. She immediately took a personal interest in me and gave me money every month to support me financially. More importantly, she also gave me the emotional support that I needed that time, even though she had three young uh, children of her own. She not only talked to my advisor for me and fixed my uh, academic situation, she also pointed out to me that I was a girl who wanted to be loved so much because my uh, original family could not give me the attention that I needed. She only had one request. I had to break up with my boyfriend. Because my professor had done so much, um, I wanted to find somewhere to pay her back. 
She said that if I really want to pay her back, I could do so by going to church with her. Only there would I find the love that I was looking for. Because of her, I started to go to church, and, but I still had contact with my boyfriend behind her back. It took two years for me to, um, finish, to end the relationship forever. When I did, I started receiving threats, and once again, my situation grew too much for me to, uh, for me to handle. Once again, I turned to my professor. I knew that I had uh, betrayed her trust, but I needed her help again. She could have rejected me, but she did not. Instead, she forgave me and helped me one more time. At that moment, God's love became real to me. Um, and it changed me totally. I also met another Christian teacher at NTU while working in her underwater acoustics lab. She held Bible study in her lab. When I visited her house, the love inside was unlike any that I had ever seen before. I hoped to have the kind of family one day. So in 2006, because of these two teachers, I became the first, Christians, uh, first Christian in my entire family, including my relatives. Looking back, it is now so obvious that my journey from a working class family in Taiwan to NTU and now to Boston were not random events. Rather, God was chasing me the entire time. I was just one of the millions of the girls in Taipei, but God found me in a country where 99% of people with my background are not believers. God grabbed me and brought me home. If it were up to me, I would just stay where I am now, comfortable in my um, educated middle-class status. I would find a respectable job in the U.S. and show people that I am successful now and a Christian too. However, after taking a short mission trip with OMF in Taiwan last year, I started asking myself a question. What's God's purpose for choosing me as a Christian? Is it so that I can stay in the U.S. and keep on chasing my dreams? OMF Taiwan has been serving working-class people for decades now. Most of the missionaries are well-educated foreigners who have devoted their life to working-class people. If if I have tested the salvation of Jesus Christ, how can I ignore the fact that I am a Taiwanese, grew up in a working-class environment, and so familiar with working-class issues? Is it fair that I go on feasting while my fellow brothers and sisters continue to go hungry? So why do I care about the working-class people in Taiwan? The complete answer is that that's who I am. I understand the issues that the blue-collar families face, so I stand among them as a living witness that God of the Bible is the God of Taiwan. I have this confidence that God will change the lives of the working class in Taiwan because he has already done it for me. Thank you. All right, so I think I can squeeze mine in here. I'll, I'll talk just a little bit faster. Um, so God first put Taiwan on my heart as a second-year medical student. Um, I actually remember these missionaries, the Christian club was asking some missionaries to talk um, uh, to us about a rather unusual topic, why they were leaving the Taiwan mission field. 
Um, despite, so what they said was despite struggling for seven long years, these two young white missionaries simply could not grasp the language. They then asked those of us who are Taiwanese in the room and being school, about half of us raised our hand. They said, um, could you consider that maybe God gave us your heritage, language abilities, and skills, um, not by accident? Maybe God wanted uh, for some of us one day to reach our own people. Uh, I just grabbed the free pizza and left. But, last, but later that year, my family visited Taiwan for the first time in 12 years. It was during that trip that I felt God uh, asking me to reach the Taiwanese people. You see, my family comes from a very small town in Taiwan, so small, in fact, that no one's ever heard of it, including Rachel. Um, there's not a lot to do there. No internet. That was a major bummer. No movie theaters. Not much of anything except the local 7-Eleven. So on most days, I just kind of strolled around town. As, looked, as I looked out at the rice fields, the temples, and the people, I remember thinking something like, you may not have grown up here, but uh, this is your home. You may not know these strangers, but they are your brothers and sisters. Well, I dismissed these thoughts pretty quickly as some emotional side effects of finding my roots for the first time. But little did I know these feelings really wouldn't go away, and it's been over 10 years. I figured that I was kind of in a reflective mood because I, it was the first time during that, during that trip, that was the first time that I learned about my grandfather and the legacy that he'd left behind. He was simply just a town doctor, just a rural Taiwanese doctor in one of the poorest areas of Taiwan. He didn't know everything about medicine, but he did know how to do one thing, and that was treat organophosphate poisoning. Back in the 1940s and 50s, Taiwan was heavily agricultural, and uh, farmers by the truckloads were dying from pesticide poisoning. My grandfather was the only person for entire counties who knew how to reverse it. Farmers from all over south-central Taiwan came to my grandfather's little clinic to be treated, and he worked tirelessly to help them, whether or not they could pay, pay him in cash, chickens, or oftentimes nothing at all. He saved a lot of lives. He was known as a good man in the community. But that's not what stood out to me. After all, doctors save lives all the time. It's their job. What stood out is that my grandfather was a Christian, one of the few back then. He was not perfect, but people knew him to be a believer. He had no formal Bible training, but he did read his Bible every day. He had no concept of missions, but he did care about his fellow Taiwanese. He ended up making a decent living, but he'd frequently tell people that if they didn't have God, they had nothing. I know this because he used to tell me this when I was young. He would not understand phrases like leaving a legacy and taking a stand for social justice. My grandfather was just being himself and living according to his beliefs and following his God, regardless of what everyone else was doing. My grandfather didn't have some grand vision to change the world. He only knew that for each farmer that he saved, he did change their world. So he put his head down and got busy working every day. For his efforts, I believe that God used my grandfather's life to leave behind just a little portion of, tai of heaven uh, in rural Taiwan. I was reminded of this just two months ago when a Taiwanese couple we met in Boston last year moved back to Taiwan. We were friends, but they had no interest in spiritual matters the entire time that they were in Boston. We continued to keep touch uh, sporadically uh, by email after they moved back. For some reason, we, we started writing about our family backgrounds. After I wrote about mine, the wife in this couple wrote back one day in an email, and we sensed a bit more serious, pensive tone. She said, Richard, I told your grandfather's story to my dad. He said that he knew of your grandfather. People knew that he was different than most doctors. You won't believe this, but my dad said that your grandfather saved my grandmother from pesticide poisoning many years ago. 
My grandfather's simple act had touched her enough that it caused her to think about her own goals in life. And this story also marked a new closeness in our relationship with this couple. My grandfather was just doing his job, but God took the ordinary and transported it into something eternal. Um, I like to think of it as a tiny piece of heaven that reached across the generations to be used by one of his grandchildren to bring one of his patient's grandchildren a tiny step closer to God 50 years later. I'm not trying to be my grandfather or going to Taiwan to do what he did. I'm going primarily because Jesus has asked me to go. But I hope you can see that there is great value in learning the legacy that you have been handed. They are often forgotten gifts from God just waiting to be claimed. And knowing that we are not the first ones to walk down the road that lies before us can inspire, comfort, and energize us all. And according to Hebrews 12, we are not actually walking down a road. All Christians are running a race, a relay race to be exact, with the gospel as our baton. Uh, Generations before us have run their leg of the race well, and now they're in the stands watching to see what we'll do with the gospel during our leg. My leg of the race is going to be run in Taiwan. We love for nothing more than for some of you to join us. But what we care about the most is that each of you are aware that there is a race going on and that you know your role and that you run it with an all-or-nothing abandon. So that's it. Um, We're leaving soon, and I would have preferred to end our time on a positive note, but as I had been warned before, the road to Taiwan would not be a smooth ride. This week we hit our biggest roadblock yet. I can't go into the details, um, but the end result is that I haven't been cleared um, to go to the field yet due to ongoing boundary-setting issues with my mom, which is impacting our marriage. So our new reality is that we've been postponed from going with OMF until some indeterminate time in the future. The other reality is that we've already moved half our stuff to Taiwan, quit our jobs here, and have another one waiting for me there. So with OMF's understanding, we are still moving to Taiwan on January 7th, but we'll continue the application process from Taiwan. Um, you can see our prayer request there, and basically, if you would be willing to either sign that book, if you want to be on our prayer list, or email me, just email me, say something, and then I'll put you on our list. We'd be very grateful. Thanks. As I mentioned when I first stood up here, I have a sermon to preach. (laughs) But, you know, I checked with the lunchroom. They'll happily hold lunch for another 20 minutes before we come down. Uh, You know, sometimes, oh, and I'm the guy responsible for organizing this service, so when it runs late, it's my fault. But, But sometimes, often, we hear from God as he speaks to us through Scripture. Often we hear from God as he speaks to the lives of his brothers and sisters. So let us take it that we've heard from God in the latter way this morning. And if you want to hear from God in the former way, come back next week. Let's pray together. Father, we pray particularly for Richard and Rachel. Well, first of all, we thank you that there's so many things going on in this church that we don't have time to squeeze them all into a worship service to share about. We thank you for the tremendous things you're doing in our lives, in the lives of this community. And now we think of Richard and Rachel. The number of hurdles they've already had to face in order to, in this plan to go back to Taiwan and work among the blue collar. And yet this, another hurdle, yet this week. So we ask for your grace to be on them. We pray for Richard as he addresses some of these boundary issues with his mom. Father, we ask you to work in 
her heart, not just in his. We pray for them as they move to Taiwan, that you'll help them to establish working relationships with people in the working class. We thank you for the way that you've worked through Rachel's background and through some of her pain and struggles in her life to bring her to faith and to give her a heart for the working class. We pray that you be with her as she establishes connections there when they go back. Be with her as she helps to train Richard in reaching out to the blue collar. Father, we pray that they'll have a long and fruitful ministry there. We pray also for them, for OMF, as they negotiate this partnership, whether a, an ongoing partnership might be available. We pray that you give wisdom to those who lead. And Father, we pray finally for Richard and Rachel with all the myriad transitions they're going to have to make. As Richard transitions to a new job, they both transition to a new home. Rachel explores her vocational future. And particularly, as they try to subordinate all of this to your calling on their lives. As they seek to be useful to you in caring for the blue-collar workers of Taiwan. We thank you for their lives and their sharing and their time in our community. And we ask your blessing on them as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise as the response.